Jesus, keep me near the cross. Bear a precious fountain, free to all a healing stream. Flows from Calvary's mountain. That's a good song, isn't it? Amen. All right. Take your Bible. Turn over to the book of Numbers today. The book of Numbers, that's in the Old Testament. I know you know that. Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. <clears throat> I was going to tell you a joke, but I didn't bring it with me. I said it in class, it was so good that I couldn't even get to the lesson for like 15 minutes in Sunday school class. You don't believe that, do you? But I, I'm almost afraid, I'd be afraid to try it, I'd mess it all up. I'm not good at that. Find out where that guy's car's parked. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Numbers chapter 21. Again, we're glad you could be here. 
let's see what we can glean from the Word of God today. Numbers chapter 21. I want to begin uh, in verse 4. We're going to read just two verses. And what I'm going to do is kind of, kind of go through the passage and express it and kind of walk through it a little bit. And then we're going to see where it takes us, okay? And so <clears throat> Numbers chapter 21, uh, you may say, this is pretty familiar. And I know that you've already, I, I, I know that it's been impossible for you to uh, not notice my handiwork. I know, I know I could see just, just excitement buzzing in the auditorium and just eyes just, just beaming, just sparkling as they saw the wonderful exhibit that I brought out. Yes, I know, it's some tremendous work. We'll get to that in just a moment. Notice verse chapter 21, verse 4. The Bible says, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea, to compass the land of Edom. The soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. Israel's been wandering now for 40 years. Almost 40 years they've been in the wilderness. They've just experienced one of the uh, great victories that they've had. They, they had defeated the Canaanites, and they find themselves now, in, after this great victory, complaining. The Bible says in verse 5, the people spake against God, and they spake against Moses. What was their complaint? Why did you take us out of Egypt? Why did you remove us from Egypt if all we were going to do is die in this wilderness? There's no food. There's no water. Why, God? Well, was that really true? I mean, 40 years now, they've been wandering in the wilderness. 40 years. Is it really true? There's no food. There's been no water for 40 years? No, not at all. Not at all. And yet, let me just say this. Think about it, for almost 40 years now, all those that were 20 years old and upward upon entering the wilderness have died. Or they're about to die prior to entering into the promised land. And it might certainly have seemed as though they had been led out into the wilderness to die because that's exactly what was happening, wasn't it? Now, there was certainly another generation that had raised up in the midst of the wilderness, but there were many that were dying also in the wilderness, and someone could possibly come to the conclusion that God had led us out here just to die. But we know that God didn't do that. We understand that God had intended that they enter into the promised land 40 years earlier, but now we find them 40 years later dying in the wilderness. And at this point, almost all of them are dead that were 20 and upward 40 years earlier. So I can almost understand why some may get the impression and the idea that they had failed to see God bless and instead he was simply killing them off in the wilderness. Well, the real reality was is that there was food, there was water. When it was necessary and needed, and it was obviously necessary and needed often, all the time. But the real problem, from what I can tell from the scripture, is that they were simply not content with that light bread or manna that God had provided. 
See, the Bible says, it says that they said, our soul loatheth this light bread. You brought us out here. Did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness where there's no bread, there's no water, and this light bread? We loathe this light bread. We hate it. We're sick to death of the light bread, the manna from heaven. How much of this manna can we take every day, day in, day out? Manna, 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 manna. We run into all kind of trouble when we are not thankful for what God has provided us. See, God had provided water out of the rock and he had provided that manna from heaven. Their menu may have been rather limited, no doubt about it, but the food was sufficient. And note that God not only provided for the food and water out of the rock, but he also provided for their clothing and other needs. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 5, the Bible says, And I have led you 40 years into the wilderness. Your clothes are not waxen old upon you, and thy shoe is not waxen old upon thy foot. Now listen, I don't know about you, but there ain't too many ladies that would be real happy about one pair of shoes for 40 years. Now, me, if my shoes would hold up for 40 years, I'd be quite content. Matter of fact, I'd just keep covering them up with a little bit more polish. I'd just do the best I could to keep them shiny, do the best I could just to keep them looking halfway decent. But honestly, a lot of people get pretty upset with only having a few things in their life. They'd prefer to have a lot more. We live in a society today that is like a fast food mentality. Our watches last only so long. Our, our, our cars last only so long. Everything we own, washers, dryers, appliances of all kinds, just come and they go you don't replace them you don't fix anything today you replace things and the Israelites are out in the wilderness for 40 years and they've got the same shoes on and the same set of clothes that they had on and they're eating the same food that they've been eating for 40 years and drinking out of the rock for 40 years oh my nothing's changing everything's the same and we're still dying off (laughs) boring Moses Need a change of venue. Something's got to give. We, our souls, our souls at the very core of our being, we loathe that light bread. See, God had provided. It just wasn't the way they pictured it or foresaw it or believed themselves worthy of. So how does God deal with this ingratitude and this spirit of complaining? (laughs) Wow. Look at verse 6. Chapter 21, verse 6. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and and much people of Israel died. You got that, right? You were reading along. Notice what happens here. The Lord sends fiery servants, serpents who bite them and they die. Oh, man. Now, God obviously considered their response of ingratitude and complaining as being unacceptable. That's obvious, right? He strikes back with fiery serpents that kill them after they've been bitten. Now, that seems a little... A rather extreme, doesn't it? 
I mean, it does really. Let's face it. Uh, you, oh, okay. You know, uh, my son or daughter, you know, uh, is complaining and whining about the, the, the things that we've provided. It's not enough. They want more. I'll just send a few serpents in while they're sleeping. <laughs> Got what you deserve, big boy. I mean, are you kidding me, right? I mean, that's crazy, right? That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. It's like, are you kidding? It seems a little extreme. But hold on, let me just say this. Apparently, God's, God's view of ingratitude and complaining is much different than ours today for the most part. He doesn't look at ingratitude and complaining quite like we do today, apparently. And by the way, can I just say this in, in justification? He is God, so he is right. You say, well, I don't agree. It doesn't matter whether you agree. It doesn't matter whether I agree or not. The fact is, is that God says, you know what? That ingratitude and that complaining is, is horrible. I, you talk about being sick to death of light bread. I'm sick to death of you not being grateful for what I've given you and how I provided for you in the midst of the wilderness, even though you're the ones that put yourself there. Well, we don't talk much like that today, do we? But biblically, that's basically what it seems that came across. And so we see here that the people now respond. So now they respond to God. Verse 20, 21, verse 7. Therefore the people came to Moses. Uncle John just died because he got bit by a serpent. And man, I'm telling you what, it's a mess. My, 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 my aunt just passed away. My mama just died. And my youngest child just went on to be with God. I, I need, we need to do something here. Therefore, the people came to Moses and they said, We have what? Sinned. We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Man, I mean to tell you, they were all over God. God, what's the problem? God, why can't you provide a little bit more for us? What's going on here? I thought we were your people, and I thought you were supposed to love us. And yet all we get now is manna and water, and it's the same old, same old all the time. And our clothes never go away. We can't go shopping. We can't do anything fun. It stinks being us. And Moses, it's really all your fault in the end because you're our leader. And as our leader, you should be able to go to God and get your way. And they spoke against God, they spoke against Moses, and finally what they do? They came to Moses and they said, we have sinned. Can I just say this, and I'm not going to dwell on it, but the truth is, is when we get to the place where we can go to God and we can go to others and say, I have sinned, you are well on your way to a brighter future. We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord. By the way, they're pretty specific, aren't they? You know how we like, to, we like to ask for forgiveness for our sins, don't you? Lord, please forgive me for my sins. He's like, all right, come on now. Name them and shame them. What, what, what sins? I'm listening. Well, you know, all of them. Well, that's pretty convenient, just to wrap them under one big umbrella. God says, no, I want you to name them. Be specific. What, is, what sin are you asking forgiveness for? What sin have you committed? 
They said, we, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. So how does God now, how does he now react to their request? Well, look at verse 8 and 9. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. So, watch now. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. We've sinned. Man, I'll tell you what, we have spoken evil against God. We've, we've spoken bad about Moses, and we recognize and realize now with our family and loved ones and friends dying all around us that we really messed up. Our ingratitude and, and the fact that we complain all the time is obviously something that God despises and hates, and he's trying to teach us a very valuable lesson, and we understand that we can't live like this anymore. We're just simply going to die. we got to confess it, forsake it, and go another direction. Oh, God, oh, God, please forgive us. We have sinned. All right, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Moses, you go ahead and you, you, you make a brass serpent. You make a brass serpent. And you put it on a pole. Put it on a pole. And he says, when, and you let them know, if, if, if they get bit by one of those fiery serpents, you tell them to look at that brass serpent. Little Johnny's outside playing with his sisters. And all of a sudden, he, he's like, oh, oh, there's the ball. It's over by that big rock. He runs over to the big rock and goes, ah, oh, oh, mama. Mama just got bit. Man, it was like a serpent was on fire. Oh, it's burning, it's burning. And she says, honey, come with me. Grabs his hand and drags him across. Come on, come on, kid, come on. I'm getting weak, mama. I'm getting weak. I can hardly walk. I'm getting weak. Come on, come on. Look, look, look. And he looks up. I feel good, mom. I feel good. Woo! That really worked. Man, that worked. Wow. Preacher did, I mean, Moses did a good job. Man. Everybody who got bit by one of those fiery serpents, you say, what was a fiery serpent? I don't really know. I got to thinking, what's that mean? I mean, does it mean that they were like, you know, like that hail mixed with fire, you know, in the Old Testament back in Egypt? I don't know. I mean, does it, did it look like fire? Was it red? Did it flash when it bit you? I don't know. Was it like those shoes that kids wear today that kind of, every time you step, it goes, whoop, 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 whoop. I'm not sure what it means when it says fiery. I just know this. You got bit, you got lit up. I got to believe little Johnny felt like he was on fire. But when he saw that brass serpent, 
that God had instructed Moses to put up there, he lived. I personally don't think that it took a few days to get better. I don't think it took a week to get better. I believe the moment that he looked, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, I'm feeling good. Woo! It's interesting to me that the people naturally, understandably, ask God to remove the serpents. Come on, get rid of the problem, right? Do away with it. God, come on, get rid of those serpents. If you get rid of those serpents, our problem is solved. Right? I mean, it makes sense, right? But God didn't remove the serpent. You notice what instead he did, he provided an alternative. Oh, God could have, in this case, taken that serpent away. He could have said, guess what? I'm scattering them abroad. I'm going to have them, they'll all die off in the next few hours. That's fine. But no, he didn't do that. They still were around and people were still getting bit. But he provided an alternative to the consequence. He provided a brass serpent on a pole. And when the smitten looked upon the serpent, they lived. We learn a valuable lesson about being thankful and not complaining, don't we? We learn that although God is strict, He is merciful and He is gracious. Evidenced, of course, by providing an escape. And we learn that God keeps His word. If you look, you'll live. Now, this wouldn't be the last time that we read about this account. Nicodemus has now come to Jesus Christ by night, and he's seeking answers, right? Okay, again, we're fast-forwarding a lot of years, and, well, fast-forwarding from your perspective, going from way back here in the book of Numbers, way back here in Israel's history, all the way up to Jesus Christ's day now. And Nicodemus now comes to Jesus by night. Again, Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus has been recorded for us for all the ages. In John chapter 3, verse 3, turn there, would you? We're going to look at just a couple quick verses and then we'll move along and finish this up. But John chapter 3, verse 3. Again, now he's going to meet with Nicodemus. We'll start in verse 1 just for the sake of getting some context here. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no, other, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Now this particular theme, this born again theme, would occupy a large part of the conversation. But the interview with Nicodemus concludes with a statement about the simplicity of of salvation. Again, he's addressing this salvation here in earlier parts of chapter 3, but understand that later on in the conversation and in the interview, he's addressing salvation again, and this... This time, he's trying to help him understand the simplicity of all of this. 
Again, look over. Man, this thing's giving me trouble today, isn't it? Is it me or is it it? I'm, I'm, you know, sometimes when you have this very magnetic aura, <laughs> microphones and you don't get along, competing for the attention. <laughs> Nonetheless, we'll see how well it works. Now, look at chapter 3, verse 14. Later on in this, this interview or later on in this, this conversation, the Lord is going to share one more illustration so that he loves this man. He wants Nicodemus to understand this salvation. Now, watch what he says in John chapter 3, verse 14. He goes on to say, and as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness. Remember, he's already said that you must be born again, and he expresses and explains that. But later on, now here he is again. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, whoa, whoa, now, wait, wait, we we get, wait, what just, you know, it's just the bells are going off, man. I mean, the light's coming on. And we were all the way up here, far removed from way back there. But for some reason, Jesus is bringing up Numbers chapter 21, and he's way up here in John chapter 3. I mean, he's back here, he's on earth now, and he's bringing that up. And he's saying, now listen, listen, Nicodemus, I tried to talk to you a little bit about this salvation. I want you to understand how simple it really is. And he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, i got to believe that the full strength of or the truth of that statement in Nicodemus' life wasn't really understood completely until he saw someone on a cross by the name of Jesus. Oh, Jesus is telling them this, and in his mind, it's, it's just like he had questions about the fact that, well, can I enter into my mother's womb and be born again? He's probably thinking, well, wait a second, what, 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 what does that have to do with this salvation? And, and I see here what you're saying, and I hear the words, but it's not really fully registering. And I got to believe that it wasn't until he saw Jesus on the cross that he went, bam, that's what he was talking about. It's so simple. It's so simple. And I wonder if that's the moment that Nicodemus finally awoke to the truth that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. And from that point on, he never wavered, nor did he ever look back. As his custom was, the Lord pointed Nicodemus to the scriptures. He sent him back to the word of God again. Man, I mean to tell you all those Pharisees and Sadducees and all those scribes, they they had all their tradition and they had all of their, 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 their little sayings and everything that went with it, but Jesus didn't go there. No, not at all. He went back to the word of God. And he sends him all the way back to the wilderness where the sinning people had been bitten by fiery serpents and where they were dying without hope. And he says, listen, you remember because you you know the word, you know the law. Moses was commanded to make a brazen serpent and hang it high on a pole. It had been lifted up, lifted up so that all could see it. Anyone who was smitten, anyone who was bitten, 
could obtain salvation and live if they simply looked. And so the solution to the poison of the serpent that was coursing through those victims' veins was simple faith. Faith in God's word. Faith in God's way. Look and live. And that's exactly what they had to do. And that is what Jesus is teaching this Hebrew scholar by the name of Nicodemus. He says, Nicodemus, think about these words, as. Think about the words that follow it, even so. These words in Scripture always indicate some kind of parallel. So when you see those words, as this or as that, or even so, you can see the one picture and it's going to all, almost always compare to another picture. So this compares to that. And so he's saying, you can take this situation and the principles that are applied here and the picture that was given fits here. And we know that the parallel is pretty obvious in this case, isn't it? Christ was lifted up on the cross of Calvary. And so as a result, every sinner that is perishing because of their sin, every sinner that's aware of their need, every sinner willing to abandon their useless human effort and remedies, every human being that chooses to venture all on faith, there is life for a look at the Savior. We sing a song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. O oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. He's saying, Nicodemus, there's no doubt that you must be born again. But then later he says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Ye must be born again if you want to escape the consequences of your sin. And let me tell you how simple it is, Nicodemus. You must look and live. It's Jesus that you must look to. People say things like, well, if God was so loving, then why would he send anyone to hell? Why? Why would he do that if he's so loving? So what they're really saying is, why wouldn't he remove the sin and the consequences? 
That's really what, what, I mean, let's face it, that's why people go to hell, because of sin and consequences. So if God's really so loving, why doesn't he just remove the sin and the consequences? Man wants God to remove the sin and consequences, even as the Israelites wanted God to remove the serpents. But God doesn't remove the sin nor the consequences. He simply provides an alternative, Jesus Christ. And he says, look and live. That's what he does. And so this morning we learn a couple really simple things. All have been bitten or smitten by a serp, the serpent of sin. And guess what? Sin brings death. The wages of sin is death. And we know, as we've mentioned before, according to Je Revelation 20:14, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So mankind lives dies one time physically, but then they'll also die a second time spiritually to be eternally separated from God forever in a place called the lake of fire. The brass serpent on the pole represents Jesus Christ on the cross, bearing the penalty of our sin. And the way of salvation then is not complicated. It's very simple. Look and live. That's how simple it is. That's how simple it is. In 1849, at the age of 15, Charles Spurgeon entered a school in the town of Newmarket in Essex County, England. He was both a student as well as a part-time teacher at 15. In Newmarket, he attended services at one church after another. He continued, he kept seeking and searching, hoping that he might hear something that would help him remove that spiritual burden that he felt in his heart. He later related that while he heard pastors preach on a variety of themes, that they didn't address his basic spiritual question and need. Quote, what I, what I wanted to know was, how can I get my sins forgiven? And they never told me that, he said. And that December, an outbreak of the of fever temporarily closed the Newmarket School, and Spurgeon, as a result, returned home to Colchester for this Christmas season. And one Sunday morning, early in January, he was making his way to church when a, 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 just a, a, a huge uh, winter storm struck. He never made it to the church that he had intended to go to that day. Instead, he entered the primitive Methodist chapel located closer to his house. There was only probably a dozen people in attendance in the whole place that morning. And so he took a seat near the very back of the church, of course, under the gallery. The regular minister even couldn't make his way in. He got snowed in, and as a result, a very, very thin fella whom Spurgeon supposed to be basically probably a shoemaker or maybe even a, a tailor, went up to the pulpit that morning. He announced and he read from his scripture from a place in the Bible, Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. That was his text that morning. He said the man obviously had very little formal training. He mispronounced words. He stuttered around quite a bit. 
But it didn't matter to Spurgeon at the time because upon hearing that Bible verse, he thought it contained a glimmer of hope for him. That little, that lay preacher that day began to deliver the message as best he could. And this, he says, quote, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now looking, don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand pounds a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look, he said. He went on to say, but then the text says, look unto me. Ah, many on ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some say, look to God the Father. No, look to Him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some on ye say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. After he had spoken for about ten minutes, he had apparently reached the end of his tether. Then he fixed his eyes on old Charles Spurgeon. Remember, there's only ten people in the entire congregation. And he startled him by saying, Young man, you look very miserable. And you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now this moment, you will be saved. Then raising his hands, he literally shouted, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. Far from taking offense at being singled out, Spurgeon at once saw the way of salvation. <laughs> he hardly noticed anything that the man had said after that, so he was just so taken with, with that one thought. He said, quote, I've been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look what a charming word it seemed to me. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to Him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and ye shall be saved. When Spurgeon finally arrived home early that afternoon, his family immediately recognized there had been a transformation, a dramatic change that had come over him. His despair was gone and he was overflowing with joy. Something wonderful has happened to you, they said. And he was only too eager to tell them about it. He said, oh, 
Oh, there was joy in the household that day when all heard that the eldest son had found the Savior and knew himself to be forgiven. Look and live today. We go through life like Spurgeon sometimes, thinking I've got to do a bunch of things. I've got to figure out what I need to do. Boy, I tell you, my life has gone off the rails and things haven't turned out the way I'd like. Or maybe I've lived a clean life overall and I think I'll be all right in the end. But friend, it is never going to be all right. You'll never find what you're truly looking for till you look and live. Again, John chapter 3, verse 14 is a passage that Jesus used to help Nicodemus recognize how simple salvation was. But I want to read verse 14, 15, and 16 so you understand the context. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There's not one of us in this room that hasn't been bitten with the, 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 the serpent of sin. From the moment we were born, we've been born into sin. There's only one solution today to dealing with your sin. If you have never, ever, ever came to that serpent, that hangs on the cross, in this case, come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, why was it a brass serpent? Because brass expresses judgment. And that serpent hung there in judgment. Can I tell you, Jesus hung before heaven and earth in judgment. Judgment of your sin and judgment of my sin. And can I tell you, until we are willing to admit that we can't get to heaven on our own, we can't do one thing to ever earn favor with God, we've got to simply come and humble ourselves before the Lord Jesus Christ and look and live. Until we get there, we will never ever, ever, ever live, we will perish in our sin. But you can look today to Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Come on now. Look and live. And that's exactly what we need to do. I wonder how many of the Israelites never looked. You say, that would have been foolish. It would. Hold on. May, they may have said something like, you know, it's just too far. I'll have died before I even get there. I'll never get there. I'm too far, too far gone. I'll never make it. Maybe they said, it can't be that simple. Can't be that simple. Look and live. Maybe they said, there's got to be another way. Does it have to be the way Moses said? It's got only one way. It's kind of, kind of exclusive. There's got to be another way. No, it's God's way or no way. <clears throat> I tell you what, I'll just trust the doctors. Can somebody run and get the doc and maybe you can give me some kind of medicine to deal with this. I'm feeling real sick right now. Give me something, doc. But only those who looked lived. Only those that looked lived. This morning... If you've never addressed your sin, sin that separates you from the God that created you, sin that ultimately will require God, as much as he loves you, to say, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to spend an eternity separated from me in the lake of fire because of that sin that you were unwilling to deal with. 
Boy, this morning you have such an opportunity. You are privileged today to be here and hear a simple message of look and live. A simple message from the word of God. A simple message from heaven itself. A message that has continued to make a difference in lives for over 2,000 years now. Will you look and live? Will you look and live? Will you see him sweating great drops of blood today? Hanging on that cross? Will you see him dead and buried? Will you see him rising again the third day? Will you look and live? The alternative is to perish. Father, we come to you. We ask you, Lord, just to speak to our hearts today. Again, we need you. Can't do this without you. You had the prophet Isaiah share a statement, Lord, that continues to ring true to this day. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Lord, I pray, dear God, that we would look unto Jesus. There may be those in our midst today who have yet to receive and accept Christ, that have yet to look to see him and admit that their sin separates them from you and that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. I pray that they would just simply trust Jesus alone today. That they would just cast themselves and their sin at your feet and humbly beg you to forgive them and to come into their life, save them and make them clean. Oh, Father. We need you today. Holy Spirit, work in lives. Do this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand, every head bowed and every eye closed today.